The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Seemed especially uh, useful for me, maybe for others too, to uh, talk a little bit in the guided meditation, talk a little bit about the importance of safety. I don't know about you, but this last week with the, you know, just in the, not only the two shootings this week and then the shootings of the police officers, but, you know, this is now a very familiar story with Orlando and the bombings in Turkey and Iraq and Bangladesh, places that we tend to somehow discount the killings there. And this just brings it more close to home. And, uh, of course, whenever, I'm sure most people realize this, but it's good to be reminded that whenever we receive that kind of information, those images, it's very triggering for us. And for some people, more than others maybe, depending on our conditioning. And... uh, and then we don't feel safe. And that to be unaware of not feeling safe actually means that we get driven more into our primal conditioning, which, you know, like in my case as a white man, that primal conditioning may not be very helpful for me to be acting out of that place. And what we would like to happen, you know, when things get messy, things are difficult, and it triggers our reactivity, our habits of reactivity, or patterns of reactivity, what we'd like to happen is to somehow, because that, that uh, conditioning is going to get triggered, that primal conditioning is going to get triggered no matter what, but what we'd like to happen is to be able to recognize it, you know, whatever it might be. For some people, that primal conditioning might be to close down, to blame, to think it's somebody else's responsibility, that it's not about me, to get angry, to want to sell our solution. Like, if only everybody thought the way I did, or if only the leaders did what I think is important. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't act or shouldn't respond, but there's something really important about that, that immediate experience of humility and of letting the experience, the chaos, the grief, the anger, to, to really let it be acknowledged and not demand that we have an answer or that, you know, basically or usually our answer is somehow dividing up everything into good and bad, who's on the good side, who's on the bad side, which is why, you know, since, you know, the trauma of 9-11 really, I mean, it's always been happening, the culture, individuals, we've been constantly traumatizing ourselves and then acting out our trauma, reinforcing it. And then uh, it just builds up some momentum, the habit of responding. We start to see and interpret our experience in terms of these primal, like good and bad, who's dangerous, who's safe, where do we feel safe. And it gets more and more narrow So as practitioners, we have another alternative, which is to learn how to be aware of the vulnerability, to be aware of being triggered, to be aware of the aversion of the messiness, to be aware of the guilt for some of us, right, of being a more privileged person, that you know we have the privilege, in my case, of not being pulled over, 
for example, or being able to walk around the city in a way that other people can't or don't feel as safe, at least. And part of this humility is realizing that we don't know how triggering things are for other people. Like I was thinking about that um, both with uh, the incident that happened last summer, Jamar Clark, and now currently with the incident that happened in Falcon Heights, uh, uh, killing the shooting of a a black man uh, by a police officer. And, uh, And then to realize slowly, you know, as I reflect on it more and more, to realize that I don't really know what that triggers in the black community, for example. And that's, a, that's not easy to have that kind of humility because we, we are kind of reflexively, we're, we almost demand to ourselves that we have a, a sense that we know, like or we know what that's like. And the reason I bring this up, I, I remember I went to a few of the marches last summer and uh, I just noticed my normal judgmental mind sort of like, well, that chant is a little bit divisive. You know, there's, there's some chants about, uh, you know, being upset about the police. And, uh, you know, I have this idea that we should be nice to each other and not put each other down. And it's just really easy to be like just thinking I know. But I, I'm realizing slowly that I, I know that I don't know. And I was thinking of this like uh, I went to the action at the Mall of America last, whenever that was, around Christmas time. And uh, just some of the actions of you know blocking traffic, going to the airport, things like that. And uh, I was just sensing the, uh, the confusion of what arises as people reflect, as people get the information, and what do we do with that energy? And a lot of my conditioning is like, well, let's, let's hold back. Let's see how things are going to unfold. Like, I want to be really clear, certain that I'm right, that I don't do something wrong. But maybe that's also wrong. You know, like being afraid of engaging because I'm not certain yet. So we have to understand not that we have to understand that we don't know. And because we don't know, we don't know whether we're erring on the side of holding back or we're erring on the side of overacting or we know we don't know. And that's a very uncomfortable place for us to be. And it's not just about issues around racial justice. I mean, it exists on so many levels, global climate change, the fact that our government is flying drones around or that we have a food industry that harms so many creatures. Or, I mean, you could, any number of systemic injustices. And instead of thinking of all of this as like this messiness of our world, the inequities, the problems. Thinking of this as a problem, it's actually, it's right in the middle of our practice. The idea, you know, it's not, we don't just sit down at a beautiful meditation center where no one moves too much and, you know, for a group of 100 people to sit like we did tonight. I mean, it was so quiet and had such a nice, peaceful vibe. But the idea is that what we learn here, right, because even though the room itself was pretty settled, how was your heart and mind, right? It wasn't that settled. But we were learning, right, to be okay with the wildness, the messiness, the imperfect movements of our mind and body during the sit. Well, and then when we go out into the world, into our 
larger communities and the messiness out there and the injustices out there and the greed and the superficiality and the thisism and the that's out there in the world, in our families, the wider world, our local communities. Well, we try to do the same thing. We try to be right in the middle, try to be intimate. We try to respond, take care of what needs taken care of without falling into hell, basically. The hell of greediness, the hell of hate and aversion and fear, and the hell of delusion, distraction, denial. Or another expression of delusion I'd like to remind myself and others of is and one of the most obvious expressions of delusion is thinking we know, the, the lack of humility, basically. And that's a, it's a deluded way that we create safety. It's like, I think I know. Now, I see this all the time. I mean, I, I really practice when I read the news and I really go out of my way more and more to listen and read things that are difficult to listen and read. Uh, listen to and read that challenge me or that like just for whatever reason I just I, I'm training my mind to have a, a kind of a magnetic pull to what I don't want to see don't want to read don't want to listen to and then I I watch I notice how my mind uh, wants to categorize it instead of just letting it make its impression on the heart and the mind and the body just letting it in and not having to sort of make up some meaning, like this is, okay, this is what I'm going to do with this information. But just let it in. Just let it in, let it in. And just trust that then my response, like what I do and don't do, who I am, what I say, it's going to come out of having let in more and more, having seen. And especially it's the, our response is less and less going to come out of our fixed idea, which as I'm saying is a, an expression of delusion, and more and more out of this more authentic space of humility, knowing that I don't know. That's the certainty we're allowed in life. We can know with great clarity, great humility, and it's really a great gift to the world, and it's an act of compassion to know that we don't know. But remember, knowing that we don't know, it doesn't keep us from responding. It actually frees it up in a way. We're more able to respond. Because when we think we know, then, and then there's something about like our response is really constricted because it has to confirm what we think is true. And that really limits us. Like if every response has this terrible obligation of having to confirm that what I think is actually true, we're, we don't want it, we won't take the risk. But when we're in the place of knowing that we don't know, but we care, we care about suffering, we know what it's like to have a sensitive heart that's constantly triggered, and we can begin to imagine, right, like what's, what's that like? what that might be like for others or the enormity of what that might be like. So we want to contribute. That, that movement of generosity, of wanting to take care, it's quite natural actually. Like, have you ever seen what it's like, like what comes up when you see a, a little animal that's suffering, that's harmed? You know, you happen to, a bird crashes into your picture window, and there it is, lying outside, stunned or dead, you're not sure. It's really hard. Like, if you're there and you see that happen, there's a powerful compassion that moves. Or if you see anybody, any creature or human being that's hungry, you really, the, the sort of the desire, the wholesome desire to want to feed them or comfort somebody, But, uh, but part of the problem of our certainty, and I think this is that primitive response I was talking about when we experience confusion, when we experience messiness, we tend to want to go to certainty because 
on the surface it gives some comfort to like blame somebody, you know, to blame the police officers, for example. They just happen to be the people with authority and guns, you know, and that and that terrible responsibility of, you know, having to be out there making everybody safe. But then we want to blame them for having a con- you know, having systemic conditioned biases in their mind, which we all have, of course. We just don't have the responsibilities they have in guns. We're, you know, in those stressful situations, our implicit biases that we all have get acted out. So we blame them. God, if only they were better human beings or something like that. So what I wanted to do tonight is connect, because we're starting this study of meditation practice, and to really, I think it's so essential that we connect the practice we do when we set aside 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes a day, maybe some of you twice a day. You set aside a little time, a lot of time, to do this formal practice where we sort of symbolically, we sit down in the middle of our life, we sit down in an upright way, whatever that looks like for your body with your particular physical conditioning or conditions and injuries and youth or old age or whatever you have, you sit in a way that expression, the body expresses this intention to be right in the middle and to be right in the middle in an awake way. And so that, that posture has a kind of humility like willingness to be exposed. Like I'm right in the middle. Not in the middle like I know what's going on. I'm right in the middle knowing that I don't know. And you notice how alert that makes the mind. Like when we know that we don't know, we listen. Like even something simple, like if you hear an animal call. If you're certain what it is, you you don't pay attention anymore. But if you're certain you've never heard that before, you know how you pay attention? You really pay attention. Now imagine if we had that quality of attention, that sense of openness and awe and innocence and humility every moment, feeling the body with that quality mind, aware of what's moving in us and around us with that, we would become wise very quickly. So we have this practice, we sit down, And one of the things we notice once we sort of establish that composure, that sense of being right in the middle, interested and relaxed, alert, bright and relaxed, you know, we immediately start to see what's being acted out in the wider world in terms of things, you know, the big things like racial injustice and exploitation and just the way fear moves and greed and lust moves and the whole economy is driven by greed and fear and all, all that superficiality and all that really unwholesomeness that drives a lot, not, all, not everything of course, but a lot of the world. We see it because it's happening right here. You know, it's just the roots of it are right here. The irritation with knee pain. You know, it's not that different than being, you know, irritated with the clothes you're wearing and wanting to buy more clothes or your boss or, you know, all the other things that irritate us. Or sort of endless distraction, you know, restlessness. The whole world is right here. So we sit, we practice sitting right in the middle. And the thing that really stands out, and this is in the book, um, by the way, on the table out there in the lobby, I have little slips of paper of Ajahn Sushito's book, in case anybody wants to have a reference to follow the talks for the next six months. But in that introductory piece, before even chapter one in that book, meditation, I think it's A Way of Awakening, Meditation, A Way of Awakening is the title. You can get it for free online. You know, he talks about in this composed place, what we see acting out, which is what we see in the world, is this play, let's just say, wholesome intentions, wholesome motivations, and unwholesome motivations. 
We see it at every level, in your families, in the global scene, in our own mind when we're meditating. And we'll see that certain motivations, certain intentions lead to heaven, lead to really peaceful, clear, skillful states of mind, harmonious states of mind. And other motivations, other intentions lead to hell, hellish states of mind, narrow, constricted, heavy states of mind, oppressive states of mind. In the same way, when we see them being acted out in our communities, some motivations, some qualities, cultural qualities, lead to hellish states or hellish situations in our world, and others lead to really beautiful, harmonious healing states. And the Buddha articulated, you know, the lists are useful, but it's not really useful until you take the list and see it directly in your mind. And then when you start seeing it, feeling it, tasting it directly in your mind, then you start seeing it in your families, in your relationships, and in the wider world. Oh, this is greed out there. This is what it looks like in the world. This is what fear looks, this is what hate looks like. This is what delusion is, the closing down, the fixed views, the certainty, the lack of humility. Right? This is what it's like when it's operating within my own mind. This is how I see it in my family. This is how I see it in my community. And it's not about waking up to these wholesome and unwholesome forces to sort of like, because we're responsible for fixing it. The way we fix it is we learn how to be intimate with it, to be really close to it. Because the feeding of it comes, the sort of, way we keep replicating, feeding the unwholesome, ignoring, missing the wholesome, is in the not understanding of them. We need to bring them into view. And you see, it's, it immediately unifies us. It doesn't matter you know, if we're the oppressor or the privileged or we're the oppressed. When we start seeing the world in terms of greed, anger, and delusion, or whatever way you want to describe the unwholesome motivations, unwholesome intentions that you see in your own heart and in the world, and the wholesome, right? The, the love or the metta, or the basic goodness of the heart, the goodwill of the heart, empathy and compassion, the capacity, the quality of letting go, of renunciation or generosity or contentedness. So these are the wholesome. We just uh, like learn how to see the world in terms of these forces and the, and the play or the interaction of all these different forces. And it breaks our heart wide open because the not seeing them clearly means we take them personally. But when we start seeing them really clearly, they're real in the sense that they set emotion suffering and they set emotion healing, you know, depending on if they're wholesome, unwholesome or wholesome. But they're, but they're really not personal. We're responsible for participating skillfully in this world, like taking responsibility for these intentions and motivations. But the way we take responsibility is we don't confuse ourselves by taking them personally. Like when I have, when my anger gets triggered or my denial gets triggered or I just want to separate things into good and bad or when I'm being judgmental. If I take it personally, then I want to judge myself for being judgmental. I want to hate myself for having, you know, for being prejudiced or for uh, somehow feeling like, well, that's not my problem. Or I want to feel guilty. I think I should feel guilty. So I, you know, I'll end up doing something, not because I care, but because I feel guilty. Or I want to look a particular way. You know, I want people to think I'm a particular kind of person who cares. So we act. It gets even worse, right? When we take the skillful and unskillful motivations that we see in our own heart and in the world, when we personalize it, 
then it gets even more neurotic. But when we see it and we understand, yeah, that's how it is, we have this mix of wholesome and unwholesome motivations. And to the degree we're acting out, we're identified with the unwholesome, we are creating hell in our own personal space, and we're creating hell in our families and hell in the world. And to the degree we're seeing and letting the wholesome intentions move and lead to actions, then we're creating a healing, harmonious, unifying space in our heart, in our family, in the wider world. And this is what we're learning in meditation practice. You know, when we sit in a quiet space, it's not a way, we're not trying to deny the messiness of the world. We're not denying our responsibility. We're actually taking responsibility for the world, the messiness of the world. It is a real intervention. And it's not like we're sitting 20 hours a day, putting an hour in. Maybe once a year we go on a retreat and we put lots of hours in for 10 days or you know, for a long weekend. Or maybe we even go on two retreats a year. Or maybe you've been, you know, you're one of the special people and you get to go three months on retreat a couple times in your life. But most of the time, we're out in the world, you know, raising kids, earning a living, making choices. We're either contributing to the chaos and the suffering or we're part of the forces of healing. And this is what we're learning when we're sitting because in a more microscopic, intimate way, we're seeing those forces and we're learning how to be right in the middle, but right in the middle discerning, oh yeah, this is unwholesome. How do I know? Because directly, immediately in my own heart, my own mind and body, I see how things are getting tight. I see how the heart is getting constricted, feeling oppressed, feeling burdened by this mental activity, by this identification with this emotion, the acting out. And then maybe we see, hopefully we see other things when we're sitting. You know, in the next moment, maybe we have a lot of compassion for what we just saw in the previous moment. Oh, honey, it's that easy being a human being. You know, that, that habit of self-hatred is like this. You know, in other words, can I open to that with compassion? Can I open to that unskillful motivation with compassion? So now the motivation is to connect with the unwholesome motivation with compassion, with understanding, with patience, with forgiveness, with a sense of humor even at times, right? So it's like never done. It doesn't matter if we've been sitting for 30 minutes and for 20, 29 minutes we've been spewing hatred or self-hatred or lust or whatever it might be. Because in that 30th moment, 30th minute, for many moments, right? There are many moments in a minute. We can care about it. We can be intimate with it. We can understand, oh yeah, that leads to hell. I mean, if we're going to act in unskillful ways, take advantage of it and really learn, oh yeah, that leads to hell. Not only hell for me, but it creates the conditions for other people to get tight, other people to be reactive, other people to lose their clarity, their brightness, get into dark, narrow, heavy spaces. I mean, we're all affected by the sympathetic, you know, we, we sort of are sympathetically vibrating with everything else that's going on. So when a lot of fear gets triggered, a lot of divisiveness gets triggered, we're going to get triggered. And depending on that particular trigger, some of us are going to get really triggered. And that's neither good nor bad. It's just how it is. For people who, you know, are part of, you know, like, which, you know, like women are part of a marginalized community. People of color are part of marginalized communities. When things happen, just the, the, uh, the triggering a lot is going to happen. 
And white people, like myself, we're also, like, being in denial is its own kind of trauma. So when things happen, my tendency to want to be in denial, my tendency to not want to be sensitive, that gets triggered. Right? So how we get triggered, what that looks like is going to be different for each person. Because we have, you know, each of us have been traumatized in different ways, being a human being in an uncertain world, being vulnerable. And we've all learned, like the status quo of our personality, of our conditioning, is learning different ways to, uh, to avoid the experience of vulnerability and uncertainty, to avoid the experience of humility. Because we have learned, unfortunately, that the superficial safety of certainty is all we have. So we pretend to be certain about whatever, like it's not fair, this is bad. Instead of learning how to touch the pain and to respond from that more authentic space. That's what we're all learning to do. And that's what we learn to do in meditation not to fall into the uh, trap of thinking we need to know, like, is this a good sit? Am I sitting well? Am I doing the right thing? But just to to realize that all I have to do is authentically acknowledge it's like this now. Like instead of interpreting to myself what's happening now, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be mindful, that means I should be able to tell myself what's happening. But we don't have to tell ourselves what's happening. We just need to connect. We need to let allow the heart to be touched. And so it's more about dropping the neurotic need to know or to define what's happening. Did you notice that in the sit tonight, like when we were sitting, how simple it can be. I mean, we can just try it right now, even as I'm talking. And you, can, you might even notice how defended that space is. It's like we get self-conscious very quickly when we're encouraged to relax, relax into the moment, into the moment that's not being defined, not needing to be defined. Like, do we even need to know who we are? Like, to be an authentic human being, a wholesome, loving human being, do we need to know, like, I'm a 58-year-old male? Or any kind of storyline. Do we need that to be a beautiful, wise, loving human being? Do we need any definition at all? We don't. And the interesting thing about responding, you know, the world clearly needs a response. And in a way, there's no way not to respond to the world. Hiding in your whatever, wherever we might hide, that's our response. You know, marching in the streets, that's our response. So one way or another, we're going to respond. And the question is, what allows for a more useful response? And the Buddhist might say something like, well, To be real allows for a more useful, wholesome, wise, loving response. And being real isn't the idea of being real. Being real means sort of entering that space that's undefined, that space of humility, that space of letting the heart be touched by what's moving. Well, what's moving? Well, body sensations, emotion, thought but not being swept away, being knocked off balance. And this, you know, this equipoise that we find in practice when we're sitting right up in the middle, it's this amazing place where we're letting everything move, including feelings of humiliation, feelings of guilt, feelings of ecstatic love and humility. So everything from wholesome to unwholesome, the whole range, of human experience, we're letting it move. And in a sense, there's something that doesn't move. 
right? That space, that open space that, in a sense, trusts that it's okay that everything's moving, that everything's happening, that everything's being felt, everything's being allowed in, given it's the space to sort of present itself, this feeling, this thought, this sensation, this sound. It's like some of there are a couple phones that have gone off tonight. And uh, so interesting, you know, especially as the person in front of the room, you know, like the habit of thinking we should have an opinion. Like, oh, that's okay, or no, that's not okay. But we don't have to have an opinion. Or if we do have an opinion, that can be okay too. But we can even get to the point where something can happen that is out of the box, and it's okay. Like, like I, we can really let it in. Like the things that have been in the news this last week. It's like really learning to let it in, which means we have to engage. We have to sort of lean in, for some of us at least, because our tendency is to lean back, like, okay, I'll, I'll check that out later. Right? So for some of us, we have to lean in. Okay, let me see what people are saying. Let me let it in, but not let it in to react, but let it in to let the heart be touched and to watch your mind wanting to tell yourself what it means. Instead of just, no, what it means is what you're feeling. The, the direct contact of the information, the sight, the sounds, just letting it in. Letting it in, letting it in. And it really breaks our heart wide open because we start to see a lot more of the suffering and a lot more of the beauty in our world because we're not so distracted by what we think it all means we're actually letting it in. And then our response, what we do, what we say, how we act in the world, it comes out of that more authentic space of humility and of really letting things in and letting things move. So I encourage you, and I'll open it up for discussion in a moment, but just to review. So when you're sitting, like to be a better citizen and to care more deeply about some of these systemic problems in our culture, and our world. Really see your formal sitting time as a powerful intervention, just as powerful as getting on the streets, marching or contributing money or talking to people that, you know, and speaking up, speaking truth to power. As important as that is, it's important to sit down in a composed way, in a relaxed way, and to see in a microscopic way, to see the world expressing itself right there in your heart, body, and mind. And to see it in terms of wholesome forces, healing forces of kindness, goodwill, basic goodness of the heart, the heart that's willing to connect with whatever shows up. So metta, right? And compassion, empathy, like realizing that this sensitive heart this frightened heart, this closed down heart, this loving heart, that's same out there as here. This mind, body that's been conditioned in neurotic ways, same out there. Right? That's the empathy, that's the compassion. In the same way that I don't want to be afraid, you don't want to be afraid. In the same way that I want to be safe, I want to belong, you want to be safe, you want to belong. So we have kindness, we have empathy or compassion, and we have the capacity to let go, to let things be, to, to give, to be generous. So we see these forces and we learn to trust them. And you can describe them in your own way, but you're, it's not about a list, it's about seeing what motivations, what intentions loosen the screws, open things up, lead to healing, lead to a greater sense of wholeness and unity or belonging. And what forces are divisive and separate, like greediness and hatred, aversion and fear. And the third is delusion, which 
I was describing tonight is a kind of thinking you know. When we think we know, we, don't, we feel we don't have to be open because I know. I know what's wrong. I know what happened. I know who's to blame. So I don't have to be in that open space. I don't have to let the world in. I don't have to be touched by uncertainty because I've got my certainty. So we defend ourselves. And that's called, in Buddhist, the Buddhist system, that's called delusion. Thinking we know having a fixed view is one of the definitions of delusion. And all the ways we close down, too, and justify distraction. So when we sit, we're basically watching. It's like being in the wilderness. We're watching all the sort of forces of the wind and the creatures and the green stuff, and we're just seeing the play, the different forces in nature. It's the same thing when we sit down. It's just that it's this internal nature, and it's just as wild, and it's just as natural as being in the boundary waters or up on a mountain or underwater or wherever else we might be observing nature. And we're just observing the play, like, oh yeah, when these are in play, things get tight. When this is in play, things get open and trustworthy and healing. And we just study. We just learn our lessons. And then you just find, this is such a, a kind of grace, you just find that then having done that study, then when you're with your partner or with your family or with your community, you're just wiser and more loving. Not because you're trying to be wiser and loving, which generally is counterproductive. You just are wiser and more loving because you've observed nature. And the nature here when we're sitting in meditation is the same nature. It's just, they're just more triggers when we're out in our daily lives, right? We're just in a more simple situation to do the study, the deeper study. But it'd be nice to hear from other folks, both questions about what I've said tonight, but your own sort of out in the world, especially in the challenging week we've all had, but also in your more intimate moments, observing these wholesome and unwholesome forces. So remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this, not like this, and it's nice if you say your name. Yes, please start us off all the way in second row of chairs. Hi, my name's Amy, and I have a question about what you're saying sort of towards the end where you're talking about letting it in. Um, You see, some people have a tendency to lean back, and I think from my experience, I tend to lean in as my sort of, that's what I'm drawn to, and that doesn't necessarily lead to skillfulness or, or, um, yeah, it just doesn't feel healthy, and so I'm wondering. Yeah, because the direction we need to give ourselves is really based on what our habit is. Because you can't, we, don't, we can't really correct, we can't move in the direction of skill and wisdom and love unless we know how to make mistakes on both sides. Because love and wisdom, like in a Buddhist sense, is seen as a balance. So just to keep it simple, which means we can go off to the right, we can fall off to the right, and we can fall off to the left. And if our habit is to always fall off to the left, then we have to encourage ourselves to lean to the right until we keep starting to fall off to the right. Then then we're getting a sense, like you have to make mistakes at the other half. And then, only then do we get a sense of where balance, what balance is. So if your tendency, like some people's tendency is to engage, to react, then, then then to... learn how to be comfortable with not knowing what to do like and learning to see that I don't really know what to do. But a lot of people use that as an excuse to not act and they need to say, well, that's fine, okay, that's good to know you know that you don't know. But that doesn't mean it's skillful not to act. The question isn't, I can't act until I really know with certainty. The question is, is it more helpful to act in this moment, or to not act. And if you don't know, well, sometimes try acting, and sometimes try not acting, and learn from that. Because this is the point. 
if we think our engagement in this the world in the world is to make the world a perfect place, then we get we freeze up. But if we think our engagement, both when we're sitting and out in the our daily life, is to learn how to be a skillful, loving, wise human being, then we're okay about making mistakes. Because not holding back is a mistake, and acting because we're afraid to hold back is a mistake. Hi, Meski. Um, I was on vacation last week and just came back last night. Um, so it's truly devastating and just a lot of heartbreak moving through. And when you were talking, so the only thing I know to do is just to come here. But I, I just keep thinking, is this, when you're talking about conditioning, a lot about conditioning, and I can, I can see that my own conditioning and how I act in the world or react to the world, and each person doing that. And basically, we are at the mercy of our conditioning. Well, are we at the mercy of our conditioning? Well, it comes, right? We know directly in our experience that if you triggered something in me right now, that conditioned response is going to show up. Whether I want it to show up or not, it's going to show up. But where, there's, where the practice begins is, what am I going to do with what's showing up? So in a way, we're going to get triggered all the time. We are getting triggered all the time. And the edge of practice is, am I just going to get triggered and act out whatever that, trigger, whatever that triggered response is? Or am I going to train my heart to feel the triggered response, right? to be intimate with it? And in being intimate with it, I see that if I acted out in this way, I set emotion suffering for myself and others. If I respond to this, what's been triggered in this other way, I set emotion healing and release for myself and others. But we can't get a sense of what to do with the, the conditioned response unless we're willing to be touched by it, to be intimate with it, which is to feel the pain and the beauty. So it's not just pain, but when it's messy, it's, it's painful, obviously. That was my question, was that as I have been sitting or still, the volatility and tumultuousness in, inwardly is intolerable. So I find myself like a machine doing anything, to, you know, anything other than being still because it's so painful, like you just said. So how to begin now. Yeah. Like I feel like part of it's forcing to sit or to, you know, so I don't, that doesn't feel right. Yeah. But I can see how critical it is right now to find a way to stay in front of it and not for a while it's in the news, you know, but like that this has to be a, something open in the heart. It's, my heart is open. So how do I heal that? I don't, I don't really know what's next. Yeah, but but it's great, and and I'm wondering like, when you sit with it and then it's overwhelming, is there a moment where there's some clarity that it's overwhelming, like that you can't sit with it anymore? Because that can be a really powerful moment of compassion. Like, this is really intense. I just can't sit still with the enormity, the intensity of what's being felt right now. I care about it. And because I care about it, I'm intimate. And because I'm intimate, I realize how overwhelming it is that I have to do something, right? And so then 
you see how we're, we're kind of learning how to ventilate the enormity of what we're feeling with awareness. It doesn't mean, because I think your point is really important about if we think we should sit, then it can become, become a kind of repression. Because the only way we can stay put is by not feeling. So the question is, how can I, like to be really pragmatic, how can I stay close? Like what do I need so that I can stay more and more close to what's moving, to what I'm feeling? And it might be sitting still, but it might not be sitting still. And this is really important. That's why people want often to gather when a lot of energy, a lot of pain is moving. Because in a way, sometimes depends on the sort of quality of the community of the group, but sometimes the group itself allows us to hold the pain in a way that we can't in the silence of a set or the stillness of a set. And sometimes it's touch and go. You know, it's like uh, we touch it and then we go, and then we come back and we go. Yeah, Brooke, did you want to say something? I, I do. Um, my name is Brooke, and I'm I'm um, interested in just bringing up the incident in Falcon Heights. I had this whole group of emotions we're talking about, but the thing I kept coming back to was I felt that the young woman who was with the man who was shot in the arm, his fiance, I guess it is, I was so blown away by her ability in that situation to record everything and the comments that she made to the officer were, for me, completely unexpected in the situation. And please don't tell me, officer, that you've shot my boyfriend. And, you know, he is, and saying what he's doing, he's reaching for his ID. And I just thought, absolutely extraordinary situation there with her her handling of it and um, I don't know I'm sure it challenged me greatly because I couldn't have had that I couldn't have had that presence of mind to act that way in that situation and maybe maybe others feel the same yeah thanks Brooke Time for maybe one or two more comments, other thoughts that come to mind. Uh, My name is Julia, and uh, I found myself in groups of people talking about our feelings, and there was a lot of everyone knew the answer, everyone knows the answer. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how to sit with groups of people. How do I sit with groups of people quietly? <laughs> because I think there was some judgment of me also because I, I felt like I didn't know the answer as we were sitting there and I offered, you know, like we batted stuff around and... But what I kept coming back to was, I need to go to Common Ground and <laughs> sit a little bit with this. Um, but that didn't seem to be okay um, among the people I was with, who are loving people. <laughs> you know, yeah. wasn't, yeah. Loving and frightened people. And, you know, just speaking from my own white perspective or, you know, privileged perspective, whatever, however you want to call it, you know, I just, I've been learning about some of these conditioned responses of, of avoiding the very uncomfortable feeling of, well, just like what it feels like to be relatively affluent or what it feels like to be living in a relatively safe way when so many other people aren't safe. And to begin to own the conditioned biases of my own mind and these things. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. So I think what we can do in groups is we can share that in ways that are appropriate, like our own study of our own mind and heart. That way they can't disagree because we're not asking, we're not telling them the way the world is. We're just telling them our own experience. This is how, you know, this is 
what I'm feeling. This is what I'm seeing. This is how it is for me. And, uh, and this is how I'm working with that. You know, this is how I'm working. I'm experimenting with you know, engaging and uh, being on the lookout for, like when I'm doing something because I want to f- uh, fit some ideal of a person who cares, then I'm being honest about that. Or not wanting to make a mistake, you know, like in my role as a leader of a community, it's like, oh, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to act as if I'm an insensitive or, you know, on the wrong side of the equation. So I'm going to do this. And then I notice I'm like really watching the motivations. And I think that kind of honesty and humility is really powerful if we can own, because the, the whole point of the Buddha's teachings is to, to own that stuff so we don't have to be governed by it. But the way we own it is by realizing it's impersonal. So we don't need to feel guilty about being conditioned by leave it to beaver and you know, all the silly TV shows and the, you know, the ignorance of our culture that conditioned our own, our, each of our minds. We don't have to be, a, it's not personal that our, my mind has been conditioned in this way, but I'm definitely responsible for unpacking it because I care about suffering and the end of suffering. And there's no release from suffering without getting very familiar with how the mind is conditioned around gender, around race, around age, around everything that sort of the structures of our culture. We have to see the conditioning. Otherwise, we're imprisoned by the conditioning. And even if you're like myself, one of the really privileged people, the being driven by my conditioning is oppressive. Right? It may not be as oppressive as being conditioned by you know, a different set of conditioning, but it's still oppressive. I still have every incentive to unpack it. So we can talk about our own unpacking of our conditioning and seeing the, the guilt and seeing the superficiality and seeing the sort of wanting to look a certain way, wanting to be a progressive or and just to see all this stuff acting out itself out, as well as the authentic being moved and really caring and willing, willing to do the hard work at, um, yeah, learning how to respond and being willing to respond even when we know we don't know. We can still do some things. We're just not going to demand that it be perfect. We have to leave it here, but I'm sure we'll keep coming back to this. And it's important that we keep the conversation, like just from Julia's point, just talk to people tonight on the way out in in, in your homes. Just try talking about it. Because even if it's like a really bad conversation and it triggers, because this is what it will trigger, you know, at least in white circles probably, you know, a lot of kinds of blaming the bad people or being in denial or, you know, whatever it might be. And that's really good to see. And so, you know, just try some things. And then, then we can share next uh, Sunday night like what we've learned. So thanks, everybody, for coming. Let's just, for a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. And whether your heart feels numb or whether your heart feels really sad or angry, disconnected, we can begin by just caring about the sensitive heart and knowing that it isn't easy being a human being, caring about all of those beings that are feeling strong pain, deep pain. May we learn to be there for each other in the deepest way. May we learn how to live our lives 
as causes for peace and healing in the deepest ways. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.